Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. My name's James Whitmore. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land this show is being broadcast from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. In today's show, what happened when three nuclear bombs were dropped on an Australian coral reef? and a mysterious and endangered creature from Tasmania's west coast and the effort that's going into saving it. We'll be right back after this announcement. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Seventy years ago, October 1952, the British government conducted the first of three nuclear weapons tests on the Western Australia's Montebello Islands during tensions of the Cold War. The bombs left their physical mark, but like other nuclear weapons, they also left an invisible and potentially harmful legacy, radiation. Surprisingly, no one has looked at what impact this radiation might have be, might have be having on marine life, that is, until now. Maddie Hoffman is a researcher at Edith Cowan University, and she's part of a project studying for the first time the impacts of the tests. Can you set the scene for us? So the Montebello Islands on the northwest coast of Western Australia, what makes their marine environment so special? Well, just looking at where they are, it's the Montebello Islands are an archipelago, so it's comprised of about 200 small islands and islets, and they used to be the top of a mountain range um, back when our sea levels were a little bit lower. Um, and they're super remote because they're about 1,200 kilometres north of where I am today in Perth, and then it takes about six or eight hours by um, boat to get out west even further to actually reach them. And they're really important, I guess, in a marine ecosystem sense in that they're very isolated, but they also represent a, a really biodiverse, rich marine area uh, in the West Australian coastline. Um, and that, that, that encompasses things like fish, but also crustaceans and vertebrates, corals. Um, it, it's, it's, it's quite, has quite a, a range of, of the organisms that actually inhabit that space. All right, can you take us back to the 1950s when, uh, when the UK government was doing atomic tests on these islands, Australia's first um, nuclear weapons tests. Can you tell us a bit about what happened? Yeah, um, I can tell you what we know. A lot of 
the details is actually still classified information, but from the historical documents that we have available to us, we know that there were three nuclear weapons that were detonated in the islands. Um, in 1952, that was the first one, Operation Hurricane, whose 70-year anniversary was last Monday. And then there were two other detonations that happened, both in 1956, uh, and those were a part that's what they call Operation Mosaic, uh, which is kind of a fun-sounding code name. Um, but Operation Mosaic, the second test, which we call G2, was the single largest nuclear detonation that has occurred on Australian uh, territory uh, in the history of, of nuclear testing. So that happened in 1952 and 1956. There were a couple of surveys or assessments that were done at the time um, by uh, Commonwealth laboratories, um, but they were really focused on the terrestrial environment because at the time um, our international radiation um, community was really focused with the impact to potential impact to people um, and really didn't have as much focus on any potential impact to any organisms, plants and animals that lived in the area. So that's why they focused on the terrestrial ecosystem. Do we know where the bombs were detonated? Were they detonated actually in the water or in the air? It does make a bit of a difference, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Um, we know that the first detonation, Operation Hurricane, was done in a retired UK naval vessel. Uh, its name was HMS Plin. Uh, and it, the, the, the weapon itself was about two metres below seawater in the hull of the ship. Um, and then that was about 600 metres off the coast of one of the islands. And you can actually see in, in GPS imagery today that the crater that still remains from that test. The other two were what we call land-based tower detonations, in which it was a, the weapon was atop an aluminium tower about 30 metres in the air when they were detonated. And like you say, the, the type of test actually really does impact how we look at the site today because it determines how the fallout would have spread or that fallout mushroom cloud that you generally picture when you think of atomic weapons. That travels differently and forms differently when you have these different styles of tests. So knowing that is really crucial information for us when we're planning out our studies 70 years later. So I know you study um, radiation, but do, is there any evidence for, you mentioned a crater of, of physical or thermal impact on the marine environment? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, my, as you said, my work focuses on basically looking at uh, the radionuclide or radioactivity levels, but we can definitely see that there has been a physical impact, at least from the Operation Hurricane detonation, just because that crater is about 200 metres in diameter today, um, depending on how you measure it, and it's, it's still present 70 years later in an archipelago that's known to be frequented by cyclones every season. It's a very dynamic area. You've got a lot of fast-moving tides, fast-moving water. So the fact that it's still there, I think, is a testament to the physical impact um, in terms of the thermal impact, obviously, when atomic weapons are detonated, they generate a lot of a lot of heat. Um, but I'm I'm not too sure on the answer to that last question. It would be interesting to look for, though. Mm. So, can you tell us a bit about um, the radiation and how much we know about the amount that's still there in the environment at this point? 
Yes, so that's essentially what this project um, has all uh, was constructed and designed for. We have some historical information on the terrestrial environment, which is great and, and necessary to establish guidelines for visitors. Um, but up until this project started in 2019, we knew really little about what actually was happening under the water. And considering the archipelago, just looking at its surface area-wise, it's like the rest of the globe. You know, most of it is water, and then you have little pockets of land in that. Um, so looking at what is actually remains in what we call the sediment or the seabed is super crucial because, one, it comprises most of the area up there, and, two, the sediment is where the organisms, the plants, things that live in that environment are going to interact and be at greater risk in that sediment water, kind of where they meet um, at the surface of the seabed. So really the main and broad aims of this project in the marine environment is to figure out what types of radionuclides or radioactivity is there, where they are, and at, and at what levels. Um, and they're pretty basic questions, but um, pretty important considering we still don't know the answers to them. Do you have any expectations of what you might find? Oh, of course. Uh, I think every good science project and researcher always starts with a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Um, so and our original hypothesis wasn't anything fancy or crazy or out there. We really thought that the higher areas of um, radioactivity would be around where the bombs originally were detonated. Um, that seems pretty logical. Um, but at the moment, we found that our hypothesis holds true. This is what we're sort of finding at this time. But we do have some areas which are higher than expected, uh, which is interesting from a scientific point of view. And it means that we actually get to go back back up to the islands um, in 2023 to do another sampling trip to sort of hone in on these areas that are a little bit unexpected and really properly um, figure out how far this radioactivity spreads in the region. Mm. And so when you're doing these tests and doing this analysis, you're looking at sediments. Are you looking also at, um, I mean, can marine organisms um, contain radioactive um, isotopes? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a key fundamental um, question that we're asking with this project too is we are looking mainly at the sediments as like sort of like the abiotic environment that these creatures are are constantly living in. But we did collect a number of organisms because we're also interested at this site, which doesn't have really any other anthropogenic or man-made impact thrust upon it. People don't permanently live there. There's no sort of exploration happening in those islands. When I say exploration, industrial exploration. and so when, when we consider that, we also want to know, like, are these organisms uptaking certain radionuclides? We have some fundamental evidence to suggest that certain things like cesium will bioaccumulate, so travel and, and magnify up the food chain. Uh, but really what we're hoping that this project will actually contribute, I guess, to our international pool of knowledge is how this happens in a in a true natural environment, not in a, I guess, a laboratory setting, but in in what we would almost call a natural laboratory and how it really interacts and how it really works in in real life, um, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So as I understand it, testing in marine areas is is notionally banned. Um, I'm curious, uh, what do you think the importance of studying these historic events is and what might they and how I use that information to, you know, make decisions about um, the control or banning of nuclear weapons. 
Yeah, so um, atmospheric testing is actually banned across the globe as part of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which was signed well, back in the 70s or 80s. So you actually can't test nuclear weapons above the ground in, in any environment, which is great news. Um, but I think it's actually really crucial to understand at this site, which we, we have access to, even though it is remote, and that people don't permanently um, inhabit, because we can then, if we understand fundamentally what has happened over the past 70 years and what the legacy of this testing program is in this particular environment. It could also be really useful for different sites because the Montebello Islands aren't the only island site that underwent um, nuclear testing in the 1950s. There are a number of other island nations that underwent the same thing and they're dealing with larger legacies um, and bigger legacies than what we have here in Western Australia. So. Um, but as of yet, um, it, it's hard to study these sites because they're a lot larger and there are a lot of other factors at play. So for us to have relative ease of access to this site and to be able to kind of understand some of the fundamentals of how it moves in the marine environment and how we might measure it might also help us in the future at, at other sites around the globe. That was Maddie Hoffman from Edith Cowan University. After the break, we're going to find out some of the secrets of the Morgian skate. But first, this is Maisha with Eventually. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Forget the 
from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. That was Maisha with Eventually and you're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. In the pitch black waters of Macquarie Harbour on Tasmania's west coast lurks a mysterious and wonderful creature. The Morgian skate is a very special type of fish related to sharks and rays, and it's as unique as Australia's better-known wildlife like koalas and echidnas. Unfortunately, it is also endangered and was recently listed as one of 100 priority species under the federal government's new threatened species plan. David Moreno and Justin Simmons from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania are trying to unravel the mysteries of this elusive creature. Uh, hi, thank you for having us. Uh, um, yeah, so I'm uh, Dr. David Moreno and I'm a research fellow here at uh, the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies. Jason, how about you? What's your role in studying this mysterious beast? Uh, yeah, so uh, Professor Jason Simmons, we started working on the skate about 12 years ago now, I think, is roughly, um, and just realised what an amazing, unusual animal it is, and lives in, in only lives in estuaries, which is the only um, Alaskan brain that does that in the world. It just, you know, really got me in and got me really interested and wanted to know more, and the fact that it was endangered, you know, we, we knew that we had a responsibility to, to find out about it because it was really little known at that stage. Can you give us a bit of a sense of what makes this skate so unique? You mentioned that it's one of, that's the only um, skate and ray to live in, in estuaries. What else makes it unique, and, where, and what kind of what kind of life does it lead? Uh, yeah, so it's uh, I guess uh, it's the only known species that exclusively lives its entire life in, in purely brackish water, and in fact, it seems to be uh, a hyper specialist. It, it requires these two very specific estuary systems in the west coast of Tasmania, very remote places, and they uh, they themselves are quite different to anything else out there. They uh, uh, they have a very specific set of, of uh, physical characteristics that create uh, basically a shallow water, deep water environment, if you will. Uh, the runoff from the rivers in the area creates this very thick layer of tannic water in the surface, uh, which has a double effect. It uh, creates a uh, a very distinct barrier of fresh water at the top uh, with a, a barrier of marine water underneath that gets trapped. And then also because of the tannins, light penetration gets blocked. So it's, it's a pitch black, uh, uh, dark environment. So you get these creatures that usually can only be found in, in very deep uh, uh, places in, in a, a very shallow estuary. And in fact, the skate's closest relatives are deep water species in New Zealand and Chile. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, like I said, this, this animal is what we know about the species uh, family, the, the, the group of, of species that are very similar. They're all 
very uh, uh, deep water specialists, fully marine animals, and, and these guys have adapted to exploit these unique habitats. Uh, and, and in doing so, they have developed uh, a, re- a set of uh, physiological and behavioral adaptations that we have not seen in any other type of shark or ray. Uh, so they, they really have become very, very good at exploiting this unique niche. Uh, but because of that as well, it means that their entire species is restricted to this one particular area. So uh, that's what we call the microendemic species. Uh, and uh, that just means that it has a very restricted range, which in turn makes it incredibly vulnerable to any disturbances to those specific habitats that it now relies on. So how do you go about studying an animal like this? You just mentioned that they live in pitch black water. Yeah, it, it, it takes, um, you know, a lot of different techniques. Uh, so we, uh, we do surveys of them and we're currently using netting. Um, we know that's effective. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's not, um, the best method for determining their abundance. Ultimately, you want to know how many there are left. Uh, but the netting, you know, has selectivity and it doesn't capture the small ones. Uh, very well. It's also prone to if they've got changes in behaviour, they're not moving around, those sorts of things, um, which can happen, particularly with the, the harbour uh, changing in terms of, you know, its um, uh, oxygen levels and, and salinity and other um, other characteristics. So uh, we're looking, we were just in the field last week and we were looking, we, ha- we were working with um, the Australian Maritime College, which is part of the university here, and they have this amazing underwater um, autonomous vehicle. It's like a submarine. I think it's about seven and a half metres long. Very impressive uh, unit. It has um, a special type of sonar that can get really detailed uh, pictures of the C4 and also a thing called LIDAR, which is basically imaging with light. So we're looking at using those sorts of technologies because it's pitch black. So, you know, sending an AEV down or, or towing a camera um, or a unit that holds these um, these devices. Um, uh, you know, we've used uh, eDNA. So people might be aware of during COVID, that, you know, to determine if COVID was in communities, people would test for um, its presence in your sewage and those sorts of things. It's a similar technique. You basically take water samples and then you test to see if the DNA of the animal you're looking for is is uh, in the water samples. Um, it's you know amazing technology and it's getting better all the time. Uh, so you know we use a, a wide variety of techniques. We've done electronic tagging, uh, which is sort of as I mentioned before, you know, where I sort of started with doing this work, and and David has expertise in, in that as well. So we put tags on the animals. We have some very special tags that not just tell us um, where the animal is, but also what the environment is. That's very important in, in, in this situation. So what the oxygen is, where the animal is, um, what the temperature is, um, and what depth it's at. And so we're using all sorts of methods. Um, it's it's a, a moving feast. We're basically always trying to, to, to see what is going to be the next method that really helps us. Um, we're doing genetics as well. You know, we're looking at population structuring. Um, you know, are there differences in the population at the various uh, sites within Macquarie Harbour? Um, yeah, so lots of different tools. Mm. So living in these two 
as far as we know, only two places in Western Tasmania. It's clearly a very vulnerable species that is endangered. What are some of the main threats that we know of? And we also, of course, know that um, Macquarie Harbour has been quite badly impacted by salmon farming. What are some of the things that are threatening this species? Yeah, well, actually, that is the focus of our research at the moment. And uh, we just last month released uh, a report. Uh, it's worth mentioning that while the species was discovered in Bathurst Harbour, this, the, the animal hadn't actually been seen there since 1992. Uh, there had been some uh, uh, netting and diving surveys looking for them, but it's a very remote site, no, no land access. So uh, it was always tricky to, to figure out if uh, people were not finding any more animals because they were not there or they were maybe less abundant. Uh, so last year we uh, had a project that had a dedicated broad-scale survey of Bathurst Harbor uh, using eDNA and uh, a submersible vehicle uh, to just very intensely look for the skate. And what we found was that uh, now the Mojin skate is no longer present in Bathurst Harbor, um, which is, uh, it does open a lot of questions. Uh, Bathurst is, is uh pristine site, uh, uh, unlike Macquarie Harbor. So uh, uh, one of the interesting things that came from this uh, uh, research is that it really was only ever four individuals that were recorded there. So uh, these new results kind of uh, open up questions about whether there ever was an established population. Uh, what it means, though, for the Mojian skate is that in reality, there is only the one system where they live. Their entire species uh, uh, have their whole habitat in Macquarie Harbor, uh, nowhere else in the world. So uh, like you mentioned, Macquarie Harbor has a lot of uh, history of uh, human impacts. There's, there's mining, logging, uh, uh, dredging, and uh, more recently, uh, salmon farming and, and uh, uh, netting activities that can potentially impact the species. Uh, we know that in recent years, since uh, 2009, there has been a marked decline in oxygen levels in the water column, and that has been a very big source for concern. So our entire research right now has been focused on trying to understand how those environmental impacts might affect the species. And we have, in fact, detected that, that uh, there are signs for concern in the population. Uh, and and uh, we believe that conservation action is required uh, uh, with, with uh, uh, urgency, which is why the species has now been listed as a priority uh, uh, species for, for protection. Uh, but it's... Uh, at the point where we believe that every single impact that potentially is affecting the skate in the harbor has to be addressed. So it's not individual stressors, but rather any possible interaction with the skate that needs to be uh, looked at. Yeah, so as you just mentioned, it has been listed as a priority species. Um, it's still clearly quite a mysterious animal. Um, so, you know, if someone gave you, you know, all the resources you needed to protect this skate, what would be some of the first things that you would do to make sure this species exists forever into the future? It's a really interesting question. Yeah, one, of, one of the issues is that the, the skate, um, when, when we've looked at genetics in the past and we've just got um, funding, only just found out yesterday to do some more of that, is there is very little diversity in, um, in its genetic makeup, and that means that it's been in these areas I mean, Macquarie Harbour in this instance for a very long time in a very small area. And so there, the individuals, um, are all very closely related. And so that creates problems in itself in that, you know, animals in those situations, um, don't have 
uh, often don't have the diversity for the populations to be, um, you know, thriving and, and uh, easily surviving. So, you know, there is, you start with those sorts of limitations that, that are on the animal. Um, and then there is, you know, the, the other, uh, things that you can look at, and that's the anthropogenic impacts in the environment. Um, and, and none of those are easy questions either. We know that Macquarie Harbour naturally is a very complex system. Um, it, it was uh, before any of the anthropogenic impacts uh, began. It was already a low oxygen system. As David said before, it's a stratified estuary. It has, you know, the, the, the three layers. Um, you know, the water flows that go into that area, uh, you know, are important as well. Um, it's a very complex system. So you can, um, you, you need to be really careful because making, it, it seems like easy. You go, okay, these things didn't exist before. Let's do this. But, you know, making changes, actually, you, you need to, you know, have a really good basis for it because um, it could be quite, uh, easily, you can make you know sweeping changes, and you don't actually change the situation. Um, you know that said, uh, you know if we could improve, um, you know the oxygen levels in the harbour, then that would be something, of course, that we would look at doing. Um, but again, you know, as I said, there's no guarantee they can be changed back to the levels they were because it's a complex system. I think the important thing is that. There's not just one player involved in, in improving this. It's, it's everyone. We're, as David said, we're at the stage now every animal is extremely valuable. Everyone needs to pitch together, and it's no particular one group. It's the whole community. That was David Moreno and Justin Simmons from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania. And hopefully we'll get David and Justin on the show again to talk about some of the exciting ways that they're conserving the Morgian skate. And that's all we have time for this week. To listen to this show again or any of our previous episodes, head to www.3cr.org.au forward slash radio blue. We'll be with you again next week. And in the meantime, stay well.